The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to look at another aspect of Christ uh, that has been fruitful theologically over time, and that is to look at the offices of Christ. How is Christ prophet, priest, and king? Uh, the purpose of this study tonight is just to magnify uh, in our minds what it is that Christ does for us, what he is for us, how he has been for us, uh, a prophet, a priest, and a king. It's really that, we would, that Christ would grow in our estimation, that we would think great thoughts of him and know how thoroughly and completely we are provided for in Christ. Also, toward the end of the study, we'll talk a little bit about our role in the world, a dim reflection of those same three ministries. Uh, we do have somewhat that uh, role now in Christ's place in this world. We'll talk about it at the end, but that won't be a major f- feature of our uh, study. Instead, I want to look at these three offices in the Old Testament. Uh, prophet, priest, and king, see how they function in the Old, Test- Old Testament and see how Christ perfectly and beautifully fulfilled each one. Now, we see the three offices displayed in a couple of places uh, in the Old Testament uh, very efficiently, all three of them clustered together. Um, you see the one or another or two of them in certain places, but there are a couple of verses that you, you see all three. Uh, one of them is uh, at the time of the anointing of uh, Solomon to be David's successor as king. Uh, so there in 1 Kings 1, 32 through 34, it says, King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Uh, blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. So you see underlined in that passage the three roles, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, that was a very solemn ceremony. And I think it's fascinating, isn't it, how um, Solomon is to sit on David's mule or donkey. And what a picture that is, a foretaste of what Christ would do when he had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, sitting on the donkey. There's no question that Jesus was proclaiming himself by that action to be David's successor, the son of David, the king, who had the right to rule. There's no doubt about it. Jesus understood the significance of it. And when they said, Hosanna to the son of David and the scribes and Pharisees wanted Jesus to to shut the children up. He said, haven't you read that it's ordained from the mouth of children and infants you have ordained praise? And so he doesn't say, uh, stop doing that. What you're saying is wrong. He accepts their praise because he is the son of David. He is the king. But at any rate, he's the one sitting on the donkey. Anyway, you see in 1 Kings 1, 32 through 34, these three offices. You see the same thing in Jeremiah 4, 9. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart, the priests will be horrified, and the prophets uh, will be appalled. One of the things I remember from my study in the book of Isaiah as I was going through that over a year and a half or so, um, early in the book of Isaiah, God begins to judge the people uh, of Israel for their sins. And he says that he's going to take away from them all of these key offices. Uh, and it isn't just prophet, priest, and king, but he's going to take away basically every significant fee, uh, figure or individual in society. Uh, and it's fascinating. I think it's in Isaiah 3 or 4. The Lord is going to take away the, the prophet, the soothsayer, the elder, the counselor and skilled craftsman, the warrior, the enchanter, all of these sort of things, all of these groups of people that have a role to play in uh, society is going to take them away. Well, what it shows me is that all of these things come from God. 
But these three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were especially significant in Jewish society. And I think so because they, for, they give you a foretaste or a picture of Christ's ministry for us. Uh, what it, it shows me, uh, just parenthetically by way of application, uh, we should give thanks to God uh, for all of the different people in society that hold it together. I remember my mission professor, Christy Wilson, was constantly thanking people that he didn't even know for the things they did. I remember that. He was always saying, thank you for what you do. We'd go into McDonald's and there was a guy cleaning up uh, a mess on the floor and he would be thanking him. All of these things ultimately come from God. Now, the first I want to talk about is this role of prophet. Uh, Examples from the Old Testament are many. Samuel, Nathan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There are many prophets in the Old Testament. A prophet was one who spoke God's words to the people. First, he had to speak God, hear God speak directly to him. And secondly, he is called by God to speak those words to the people. One of the clearest examples of this dynamic, you see, is in the call of, of, uh, <clears throat> of Samuel to the prophetic ministry. Let's look at this together, 1 Samuel 3, uh, 1 through 19. It says there, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. <clears throat> Excuse me. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Now, what that means is uh, there, were, there were not prophetic utterances. We couldn't say the word of the Lord came to Eli uh, saying such and such. It just wasn't happening. The word of the Lord was rare at that point. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. So clearly, this is a, uh, a sound that sounds like audible Uh, an audible voice to this little boy because he doesn't know what it is. He thinks that uh, that it's Eli, as we'll see, but there's some kind of call that he can hear as clearly as if you and I were speaking to that individual. Uh, That's the nature of being a prophet. So he says, here I am. And he ran uh, to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and he said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now you put yourself in Samuel's position there. Here's this young boy. Clearly, he loves Eli. He's almost like a father figure to him, a mentor, certainly, somebody who's training him in the priestly functions. And uh, uh, this is his initiation or his inaugural uh, inauguration to his prophetic ministry. Basically, this is the word of the Lord. Go tell Eli you're finished. Go Go tell Eli because you did not restrain your sons, because you honored your sons over me, you're You're finished as uh, my priest. You're finished as my representative. 
Well, uh, it says Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. Now listen to this. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. Now it's a little unclear in the Hebrew whose words are in view there. It could be that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground, but upheld what Samuel said. Uh, that is one of the interpretations. But I think in context, it's more likely the other way around. That when the Lord spoke to Samuel, Samuel told the people everything God told him to say. In effect, then, the prophet is somewhat like a waiter in a restaurant who brings a meal uh, from the chef to the table. It's not the waiter's role to be messing with the stuff on the tray. If the chef ever saw him do that, if he's a fine chef, he's going to fire that waiter. He, that chef went to school to learn how to arrange everything just perfectly. How could that waiter improve on it? And so it's not his job to be rearranging anything on the plate. It's his job to take the plate and present it uh, to uh, the table. And that's what a prophet is. A prophet takes the word of the Lord that he hears, almost like an audible voice, as you can hear there. He thinks it's Eli that's calling to him. Go tell my people, thus says the Lord, and then go tell them such and such. He has no right to rearrange the message. He must not let any of God's words fall to the ground. He must speak everything the Lord has commanded him to speak. By the way, you see some of that in Acts 20 when Paul, uh, call, uh, calling to the Ephesian elders and summoning them and they come, he says, I have not shrunk back from proclaiming to you anything that would be helpful, but have, have proclaimed to you the whole counsel of God. Uh, in other words, that was the ministry of Paul to the Ephesian church and to the Ephesian elders. He said, I told you everything God wanted me to say. And so therefore, um, a prophet basically presents to the people of God everything that God has told them to say. Uh, by the way, you look again and again at the suffering that's brought in the lives of the prophets. Think about the, the life of Jeremiah as he's given very tough messages to go tell the people. And uh, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and said, do not be terrified before them or I will terrify you in front of them. So basically, you need to fear me more than you fear the people and go ahead and tell them the full message. But this is the nature of a prophet. Uh, Jeremiah 1, 4 through 9, it says, The word of the Lord uh, came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. That's the essence of being a prophet. Go where I, I send you and say what I tell you to say. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. This is the essence of prophecy. Do you see the difference between prophecy and teaching? What I'm doing right now, what I do on Sunday mornings is teaching. Preaching is a type of teaching. It's different than this. Do you see the difference? This is, I have put my words in your mouth. Now go say everything I've commanded them to say. This is one of the errors I think that Puritans made where they make no distinction between prophesying and preaching. There, to me, there's a difference. Uh, William Perkins wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. It's really about preaching. It's a book on preaching. It's a great book except in that one issue, uh, which he put right in the title. So who am I to question the great William Perkins? But I would, I would say there is a significant difference between prophesying and preaching. This is prophesying. 
You are speaking directly the words that God puts in your mouth if you're a prophet. Ezekiel 2, 3 through 7, it says, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people I am sending you to are obstinate and stubborn. (laughs) Say to them, this is what the Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, my son, or you, son of man, sorry, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. That is the call of a prophet. For him, as difficult as for Jeremiah. And he lived at the same time. It's the time of the exile to Babylon. And so clearly, the essence of being a prophet is God gives you words to say and you are to say them, all of them, leaving nothing out, no matter how they react, whether they listen or they don't. That's the role of the prophet. Second Peter 1, 20 um, and 21 says, Above all, <clears throat> you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no one uh, says, I think I will prophesy today. No one can say that. No one has that power. That would mean that the prophecy had its origin in the will of man. But no prophecy ever has its origin in the will of man. Rather, human prophets are conduits. They're waiters. They bring a message that has been cooked in heaven down and presented to the people. It is not for the prophet to rearrange or do anything with it at all except give it completely. What would you think of a waiter that took the side dish off and pulled it off to the side and ate it himself? All right. Everything on the tray has to be brought or you're not a good waiter. And uh, yeah, go ahead, Andre. Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters would say, yes, those that believe in the sign gifts would say, yes, that kind of spirit of prophecy uh, can occur today. I am not a cessationist. By that, I mean there is no strong scriptural evidence that the sign gifts have ended. But I personally have never been around anyone that I considered a prophet. Okay. Well, I think that's different. I think that you know, the scripture says they will all be taught by God. I think if you are a child of God, the spirit speaks to you directly, usually through the, the scripture, I think. Just like it says in Hebrews 3, you know, uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, and again, think about the, 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 the language used uh, with the coming of the spirit in Acts chapter 2. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. There's this universality of experience, very much like what the prophets experience. But I do think there's a difference. Um, I think when I open my mouth and say something like this to you, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Am I acting like a prophet there? I don't think so. I'm quoting scripture. I think there's a difference. I don't consider that prophecy. When Paul wrote it, I consider it prophecy. There's a difference. There's an immediacy to the action of God through the prophet that makes his or her words inerrant at that moment. That's why I hold it at this one level. I just think there's a difference between prophecy and teaching. There's a difference between prophecy and biblical exhortation. Those kinds of things go on through the spirit all the time. Very good question, Andre. Yes, sir. 
o'clock come and the Lord spoke to you and said, share this with the congregation. Yes. Would that be considered? It's a very good point. It is possible for one to prophesy without having the office of prophet. Clearly, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are being called to a lifelong pursuit. Same thing with Samuel. This is going to be their role. They're going to be regularly prophesying to the people. However, Balaam's donkey, we would not call a prophet. We would say that Balaam's donkey prophesied, but we would look on him as ordinarily a beast of burden. Okay, And probably he returned back to that role after the prophesying was done. And so, so also uh, King Saul, evil King Saul. He prophesied, but he was not a prophet. Um, and and the, I, I would not say that once you utter a single pro- prophecy, you are therefore a prophet. It has to do with the role in society that God calls you to. Very good question. All right, let's keep going. The second uh, role in society we're looking at, Old Testament role, is this role of priest. There are many examples, Abiathar, Zadok the priest, others. A priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and praises to God on behalf of the people. There are other, uh, that's Grudem's definition. I would add some other things. It says that the, uh, the lips of a priest must speak knowledge. So pre- uh, priests were teachers of the word as well. I actually think one of the major themes of the book of uh, Judges was the failure of the Levites to teach the people the word of God. I think basically if you want to look at that horrendous book of Judges, and it is horrendous, it is really bad that the people are acting like Sodom and Gomorrah by the end. You know, remember how there's a scene very much like what happens out in front of Lot's house, but it's there at the end of Judges right in the people of God in the promised land. It's a horrendous thing. Well, I think again and again there's the failure of the Levites like one Levite is some man's personal priest in the, in the family. And, and it just, everything's all messed up. It's just so different from the book of Deuteronomy. If they had just done the law of God, they would not have done any of these things. So I think it's the failure of the Levites. And uh, Levites was a larger set. Priests were all Levites, but not all Levites were priests. But I, I just do think priests were given the role of instructing the people concerning righteousness but primarily they focused on the sacrificial system the animal animal sacrifice and offering prayers and praises that's what they did hebrews 5 1 summarizes their role in this way every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to god and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins that's what a priest did all right uh the third role is the role of king A good example is David. There are many others, of course. Uh, The king ruled over God's people as God's representative. Uh, Ezekiel 37, 24, uh, my my servant David will be king over them and they will uh, all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. So there's that image of shepherd. As a matter of fact, when David... um, sinned against Bathsheba and Nathan was convicting of his sin. He said, I raised you up from that flock to shepherd my people. Also in Micah 5, 2, it talks about the coming of the Christ, how he would be the shepherd of God's people, Israel. So there's this idea of shepherding and that's important to think of when you think of the king. First and foremost, therefore, the people saw the king as a protector against foreign enemies. As a matter of fact, when they first asked for a king, this is what they had in mind. They wanted somebody to organize the people militarily, to take up after Joshua, now that Joshua had long since departed the scene, he'd long since died, they wanted somebody to organize the 12 tribes militarily so that they would have a king to go out and fight battles on behalf of the people. The king was a protector. Now, it says in 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17, Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. You see that? This is what the Lord said. 
So immediately in speaking to Samuel that he's going to anoint Saul as king, the Lord himself says his role is going to be to deliver my people from the Philistines. He's going to fight battles. And he did. He fought very well. As a matter of fact, David in his lament over Saul and Jonathan said uh, that Israel's glory lay slain in the heights because, uh, because of them, they were able to defeat and push back the Philistines, really to complete or more nearly complete the conquest of the promised land. It was uh, King Saul that enabled them to do that. And the Lord himself said it. I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me, says the Lord. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke uh, to you about. He will govern my people. All right, uh, 2 Samuel 5, 1 and 2. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, you will become their ruler. Again, they're thinking militarily, aren't they here? They're thinking about protection. They're thinking about a king who can keep them safe from the Gentiles. Proverbs 30, 29 through 31, it says, there are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately being. A lion, mighty among beasts, who retreats before nothing, a strutting rooster, a he-goat, and a king with his army around him. All right, so again, you get the picture of military strength. Uh, The king is confident when he's got his army around him. Uh, And then again, as I've mentioned, Micah 5, 4 and 5, Speaking of Christ, ultimately, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be for their peace. Uh, sorry, he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, uh, eight, even eight leaders of men. Again, there's a military sense there. The king was there to organize Israel militarily, to raise and train an army and to lead that army in battle. That's what a king did. Secondly, a king was a dispenser of justice. You came to the king to get justice. All right, First Kings 3 uh, uh, this is the very famous story about Solomon. You remember the story about the two prostitutes and uh, one of them uh, went to sleep with her infant, I guess, and in the middle of the night rolled over on the child and killed it, suffocated it, I guess. And so uh, the, apparently she gets up and switches out the babies and th- thus you have a problem. Uh, and they bring the issue to, to King Solomon. Now this shows you Solomon's role in society. He is the judge. He's like the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's the highest uh, dispenser of justice in the land. So the king is summarizing this whole thing. This one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. And that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. Can't do this these days. But anyway, this is what Solomon did. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. This is what you call providential justice. This kind of thing would never work out these days, even if you did it. It's like both of them would say, all right, go ahead. Or both would scream, no, no, I can't bear it. But in this case, one of them says, oh, no, I can't. And the other one's like, go ahead, cut it. And then it's just obvious what to do. Well, the Lord worked that out to elevate Solomon and his wisdom. But at any rate, the woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him cut him in two. Then the king uh, gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is uh, his mother. Listen, when all Israel heard the verdict uh, the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Now, by the way, isn't this the very thing that Solomon asked for? 
I mean, he's got to judge the people and he didn't know how to do it. He needed wisdom. He didn't have it experienced. Even, even his father said, my son Solomon's young and inexperienced. Uh, and so he asked God for wisdom, specifically in this case, I think, to dispense justice. Again, 1 Kings 10.9, it says, Praise be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you. This is speaking to Solomon. This is a Gentile king, Hiram, king of Tyre, speaking to Solomon. Uh, and he's praising him. Praise be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So therefore, justice and righteousness are the foundation of a throne. Justice and righteousness are the scepter of a good king. And so therefore, he's going to dispense justice. It just doesn't have to be him that does it. He may appoint judges that will uh, rule in his stead, etc. But he's in charge of the issue of justice and righteousness in the kingdom. So those two things are especially important, uh, that he would uh, protect the people from their enemies and that he would dispense justice in the land. Now, Christ is the fulfillment of each of these three offices. Each of these offices foreshadowed some aspect of Christ's work on our behalf. By the way, isn't it interesting how Christ uh, refuses to play the judge in a role of, uh, of an inheritance. Remember when this man says, judge between me and my brother concerning our inheritance. And he said, man, who made me judge between you and me? And then he warned them against greed. And it's interesting there because I think theologically, to some degree, Christ was not king yet. As a matter of fact, in one of his parables, uh, it's, it said uh, a man went away to gain a kingdom for himself. And then he comes back. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, uh, the kingdom isn't fully come yet. And so Jesus doesn't take the role of dispensing justice there. Instead, he asks a question. He doesn't say he doesn't have the right to dispense justice. He just asks a question. Who made me ruler and judge? And, and uh, in effect, challenges, am I who you think I am? Am I the king? It's an interesting uh, moment there. At any rate, ultimately, Jesus will be the dispenser of justice. Remember what it says in... Um, in uh, John chapter 5, that Jesus, that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He's given him all justice, Jesus says, or all judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the ultimate ruler over the human race, um, according to the justice that God's given him in John chapter 5. All right, I've already gotten ahead of myself. Well, let's, let's talk about um, Christ uh, in each of these three offices. Uh, first, Christ as a prophet. Um, as prophet, uh, it says, he reveals God to us and speaks God's word, words to us. As priest, he both offers a sacrifice to God on our behalf and is himself the sacrifice that is offered. And as king, he rules over the church and the universe as well. So that's the overview of the whole thing. Let's talk about Christ as prophet. Uh, the establishment of the office of prophet is very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is one of the most poignant and powerful passages in the book of Deuteronomy. That's when the people stood before God and were terrified by God's voice. They were afraid to hear God speak. And it's one of the few times that God ever praises Israel. doesn't usually do it. He usually says, as you saw earlier in the Ezekiel passage, they're a stubborn, rebellious people. Or in another place, stiff-necked and all this kind of thing. But here, he actually praises them. <clears throat> Uh, look what he says. When you heard this voice or the voice out of the darkness, this is Moses speaking to the people. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord, our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. We have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live 
even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. Friends, that is the essence of the of the role of the prophet. Go near to God, listen, get his words and come down and tell us what he said. Now, it's interesting what happens at this point. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Now, it's interesting. He could say, oh, you know, they're really kind of overestimating me here. You know, they, they really are overestimating their danger. They're in no danger. I'm a loving, gentle, heavenly father. I'm gracious always. I speak words of gentleness and kindness. Why are they afraid of me? If only they would just know my true, loving and gentle nature. He doesn't say anything like that, though God is loving and gentle. Instead, he says, very good. You finally get it. Oh, that you would always fear me like this. Oh, that you would always esteem my words with such reverence. But you won't. (laughs) But that you would always fear me. That's what he was talking about. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all all my commands always so that it may go well with them and their children forever. See that little word, word, oh, I'm going to preach a lot about that uh, in two weeks. Not this coming Sunday, the next one. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. What does that word, oh, mean? When you hear the word, oh, what does it mean? What's that? A lot. A lot? Okay. <laughs> okay. It's a little word, but what does it mean? Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. Shows emotion. It's a magnifier. It's a word that shows what I'm about to say. I really feel. There's a passion behind it. We see it from man to God in Paul's doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. But here it's from God to man. Oh, that they would always fear me. There's the passion of God there. That's what I just preached on this past Sunday. How can we dispense with the fear of the Lord? How can we, because there's a couple of verses that seem to say some things about fear, then say we don't need to fear God now that we're saved. It doesn't make any sense. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And here he's saying, oh, that they would always fear me. Not, oh, that they would fear me until they are at last justified by faith. That's not what he says. Oh, that they would always fear me, he says. Their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land I'm giving you, giving them to possess. So God, therefore, ordained the office of prophet. Moses was, was a picture of the prophet. Do not imagine that I'm saying that Moses was the first prophet. He wasn't. All right. Enoch walked with God. You know, God spoke to Noah. God spoke to uh, uh, God spoke to Abraham. Certainly. I'm not saying he was the first prophet, but there's such a picture there. of The prophet Moses goes up on the mountain, spends time with God, hears his words and comes back down and tells the people. Yes. To write new scripture. Wow. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, 
definitely not him. I know he's out, okay? I wrote a whole paper on how the Book of Mormon was plagiarized from a book written by a congregational minister named Ethan Smith. A whole different story. Exciting. We'll tell it another time. So he's out. We know he's done. And so is all of Mormonism. I'll go on tape. Mormonism is based on a plagiarized book, a novel. All right. Are there other people that can write scripture? Some people take the warning at the end of the book of Revelation and apply it to all of scripture saying with the book of Revelation, the written word of God is hereby ended. I think hermeneutically it may be challenging to do that because it says this book. If anyone adds to the words of this book and at that point it seems the book referred to as the book of Revelation. But yet, you know, in redemptive history, Revelation does seem to end the whole Bible, doesn't it? It seems it's the latest book. And so I don't think it's irreverent to take that and extend it to the 66 books of the Bible. Providentially, nothing comes after that that the church has ever accepted as scripture. It's a very significant thing to write scripture when you stop and think about it. So I think absolutely not. But does that mean that there are no prophets today? I'm not saying that either. Uh, There were prophets in the book of Acts going on. Others will make a strong secessionist case even tied to the canon of the scripture, saying when the canon was finished, when we had the New Testament completed, we didn't need prophets anymore. That's when it dropped out. Well, that's logical. It makes sense. I'm just telling you the Bible doesn't say that. And that's why it goes beyond scripture. I think it's unhelpful to go beyond what scripture says. So good question. Um, All right. God ordained the office of prophet based on this one encounter to stand till the end of time. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, it says, The Lord your God, this is again Moses speaking to the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. Now, isn't it interesting how this this is the book of Deuteronomy again, 13 chapters later, it goes over the same encounter. Do you have a sense that this was a very significant encounter in God's mind when they're standing on the on the mount and saying, please don't speak directly to us anymore or we'll die. Send us somebody to to speak to us and we'll listen to him. He, he says, good, that's good. He said it here in, ch- in chapter five. He says it again in 18, but he establishes this office of prophet. You see, what they say is good. Top of page five on my handout. What they say is good. I will raise up for them prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. So therefore, I would challenge anyone who's claiming to be a prophet, be very careful that you really are one. Okay, because this is a very serious thing, isn't it? If you claim thus says the Lord and the Lord's not saying it, you are a false prophet. And that's a very serious matter. If you don't think it is, just read Second Peter 2 and see what, what the Lord says about both false prophets and false teachers in that chapter. Very serious thing. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. That's what Peter says. That's how serious is this matter of false, false teaching, false prophecy. But anyway, he says, um, anyone who speaks anything in my name, I've not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to, put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? 
If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Now, here we see an aspect of prophecy that is probably the most famous aspect of prophecy. As a matter of fact, when you think of prophecy, what's the first thing you think of? Future telling. Right. Foretelling. Telling the future. I say to you that that is not all that prophecy is. Prophecy can actually speak about the past and still be prophecy, biblically. It could be, thus says the Lord, this is what happened a hundred years ago, and this is what I was... That's prophecy. But it's not what you tend to think of, is it, when you think of prophecy? The reason is that God has elevated this special aspect of prophecy above all other aspects of prophecy to prove that he is different than all the other gods because he's the only one who can tell the future. And when God speaks the future through the prophets, it, it sets both the word of the Lord and the prophet and his ministry apart as unique. This is especially true of the great prophets who prophesied and predicted the coming of Jesus Christ because they did so hundreds, even a thousand years in advance. And so their words came true. They were truly prophets of God, weren't they? But here he elevates that aspect of prophecy which can be proven. Namely, if a prophet says, the king of Babylon will not conquer Jerusalem. He's not coming in here. And then Jeremiah says, you'll see when you go hiding in an inner room, then you'll know. Uh, Jeremiah was the true prophet, even though he brought bad news. The others were false prophets, even though they brought good news. What they said did not take place. They were false prophets. Nebuchadnezzar did conquer Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah said he would do. So there's the test. Now, I want you to notice how seriously and severely God is testing his own people. He says, I'm going to raise up a prophet and you must listen to everything he tells you. If he is a true prophet and you do not listen to him, what does he say will happen to you? He says, I myself will call him to account. The Septuagint translate, translation, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 3 is, if anyone does not listen to the prophet, he will be cut off from his people. Look it up. Take a minute and look at Acts chapter 3. He quotes this exact same thing in Deuteronomy 18. But just look and see what Peter says. For you, it's very relevant because of what we're, we're looking at on Sunday mornings. But look what he says in Acts 3. Um, um, he's talking, this is Peter preaching after healing the beggar. Remember, beggars walking and leaping and praising God and all the people come, huge crowd. Whenever there's a huge crowd in the book of Acts, the apostles always know what to do with it. They preach to it. Okay, so here's the huge crowd. The purpose of the miracles, among other things, was to draw a huge crowds so that the apostles could preach the gospel. And that's what they did. Other things, yes. It also displays the compassion of God and his love. There are many things the miracles do, but one of the things the miracles seem to do in the book of Acts is draw a large crowd. And they always preach the gospel. So here he is preaching the gospel. Look at verse 19. Let's, uh, well, let's start at verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who is appointed from you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This is the second time Peter's mentioned the prophets. What is he calling on the people to do? Repent and believe in Jesus. And he's going to remain in heaven until he comes back. For Moses said, verse 22, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. 
Now, that's a little different from what Deuteronomy 18 says, but Peter, being an apostle, is allowed to do that. And he's saying what about the Jews? Who is the prophet the Lord will raise up from among the people? Who? Who does Peter think it is? Definitely it's Jesus. All right? And what challenge is Peter, really God, presenting to the Jewish people concerning this? What do you have to do with this prophet? You have to receive him. Believe everything he tells you. Do what he tells you. Follow him. What if you don't? What if he's the true prophet and you do not follow him? You'll be cut off as in Romans 11, branches stripped off from the olive tree. You'll be cut off. Is that what happened to them? Yes. Note then the goodness and severity of God. Severity to those who are cut off. Why were they cut off? According to Peter's word here. Why were they cut off? They didn't believe who? Christ, the prophet, the Matthew, or sorry, the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. They didn't believe him. And so what happened? They lost their souls. They were stripped off. But what happens if a false Messiah comes? What are they supposed to do to the false prophet, the false leader? What are they supposed to do to him? They're supposed to kill him. What did the high priest think he was doing? This very thing. He thought he was killing a threat to the people. Now, he's got other issues like greed and all the other things that Jesus exposed. He's not a good man. But I'm just saying, if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, what should they have done to him? I say the very thing they did do. Note then the test that God put to his people. It's literally life or death. It's eternal life or eternal death. You've got to get it right about this prophet. If you get it right, you'll live forever. If you get it wrong, you will die. It's that simple. And so also for the prophet who comes, if he speaks in the name of the Lord, what God told him to, he's a genuine prophet, he's fine. He's rewarded. He's got a prophet's reward. You listen to him, etc. But if he speaks presumptuously, anything God told him not to say, or if the things he said does not, do not come true, he's a false prophet, put him to death. It's life or death. What a test. And so therefore, what should the high priest have done? One of two things. Basically, God gave him two two, uh, options when Jesus came. And he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, I am. What should the high priest have done? One of two things. Fall down and worship like Thomas did or put him to death. That's it. You can't have middle ground. This is the old C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, lunatic thing. You just have no other option. God's given none. You either have to worship him or you have to kill him. They killed him. That's what happens. Deuteronomy 18. This is the prophet. So the Lord is going to raise up the prophet and you must listen to him. Now, what I want to say to you, very interestingly about the office of prophet. There were other prophets than Jesus. There were other prophets than Moses. Basically, what happens in Deuteronomy 18 is that Moses, that the Lord, opens up the office of prophet and many are going to fill it. Just like um, uh, Nathan opens up the office of descendant of David, son of David, and many will fill that too. Some will be good men and some not. But the office is opened up until the one for whom it is intended ultimately comes. All right, and that's why in Deuteronomy 18, he gives a test for how you can tell what kind of prophet it is, right? Not ultimately for Christ, but because there would be many prophets. Some would be good and some false, as we saw in the days of Jeremiah, right? So at any rate, he opens up the office and there are many of them. Like it says, my servants, the prophets. There are many servants, the prophets. They come one after the other. Remember Jesus' parable about the, about the vineyard. 
and he sent many messengers saying, give me my share of the crop, and they killed them. These are the prophets, one after the other, the servants, they come. All the prophets that followed were fulfilling this office. They're all filling the Deuteronomy 18 office of prophet. They were going up on the mountain, metaphorically. They didn't literally go on a mountain, but some of them did. Go up on a mountain. They heard the words of the Lord and came down and told the people. That's what they did until the time of Christ. Now, the one predicted by Moses was Jesus. It was the prophet. The prophet was the ultimate final word from God. Look at John 1, 19 through 21, right here on page 5. This was John's testimony. This is John the Baptist now, speaking of John the Baptist. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Kind of like capital T, capital P, the prophet. Okay? He answered, no. Again, John 6, 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Do you see that? They're expecting the prophet, the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, the one you have to listen to or you'll be cut off from the people. They're waiting for him. All right? Christ was that prophet. He was the one final prophet that Moses predicted. The continuation with the people of God for, uh, for the Jews depended on what they did with Jesus' words. We've already covered this. I won't go over it again. Anyone who does not listen uh, to him will be cut off from his people. Therefore, Christ was truly a prophet by our definition. Look at uh, John 12, 49 and 50. This is Jesus speaking. I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me, listen, commanded me what to say and how to say it. Isn't that the definition of a prophet? Isn't Jesus therefore a prophet? Doesn't he go into the presence of God and God the Father told him what to say and how to say it and he went down and told him everything that the Father said. Jesus was a prophet. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's, those are the words of a prophet right there. Jesus was clearly a prophet. Now I will say to you this, Jesus' role as prophet was misunderstood by his own people. All right. Whenever the people spoke of Christ as a prophet, they usually underestimated him. For example, Matthew 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. That's insufficient. Small p. Uh, he's a prophet. He speaks the words of God. There are lots of prophets. There's only one Jesus, okay? So they underestimated him. Even though they called him a prophet, they didn't fully know what they were talking about. Luke 7, 16. They were all filled with awe after seeing a miracle. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. Do you think they fully understood who Jesus was when they said these words? No, it's, it's insufficient. It's, it's faint praise. It's not sufficient praise for him. All right. Again, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, after Jesus says, uh, you're right in saying you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Truly, you've said this. And uh, she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. All right. She doesn't fully understand who he is. All right. But she is very impressed by his ability to know details about her life that ordinarily he wouldn't have any access to. It's a little unnerving, don't you think? I mean, it's just like when, when Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 of Daniel and said, these are the thoughts that went through your mind as you lay on your bed. Isn't that int intimidating to be in the presence of a prophet who can tell you what you were thinking about as you lay in your bed last night? All right, nothing is hidden. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God. But uh, here is um, Jesus and he is told by the woman, I see that you're a prophet. She didn't fully understand who he was. Now, after Jesus spent time with 
the Samaritans and the woman, they had a greater sense of who he was. But even then, still not fully. Matthew 16, 13 and 14. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Is Jesus one of the prophets? Well, yes. (laughs) Okay, but he's not just one of the prophets. He's the final prophet. He's far greater than that, infinitely more than just another of the prophets. Infinitely more. Yeah, uh, Jesus, first of all, was greater because he's the one about whom the prophets wrote, okay? About whom, I don't, I'm trying to think if any of the prophets were themselves predicted. John the Baptist was, but that's unusual. Usually the prophets wrote about Jesus. And so therefore it says uh, in John 5:46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. By the way, do you realize how bold that is? To say that to the Jewish priests and leaders and teachers Moses wrote about me what would you think if I said that to you lose my job go back to engineering it would be illegal for you to stone me so don't do it okay but uh huh would it be right I don't want to get into that okay I'm not going to say it so you'll never know uh, Luke 24:27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The prophets were Christ-centered. They were Jesus-centered. This is the whole spirit of stupor concerning the Jews in, in uh, Romans 11. They can't see Jesus in the prophecies. Isn't that the whole is- essence of it, of the blindness? It's they can't see Jesus in Isaiah 53. That's the tragedy here. But uh, Christ was the one about whom the prophets wrote. And again, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointed when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the grace or the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. In other words, the prophets wrote about Christ. The prophets didn't fully understand what they're writing. They actually were very inquisitive. They'd get done writing and they'd say, what was that (laughs) that I just wrote? Do you ever think about David in 1000 BC writing, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And uh, he wrote it. So I think his hands were fine. I, I don't know of any indication. There's no stories in which David's hands and feet were pierced. He wasn't writing about himself. And the Spirit told him in some way, it says here, that he was, he was speaking of the sufferings of the Christ. But he didn't fully understand what he was writing. And so it was with the other prophets. Do you think Isaiah really understood? You know, he was led like a sheep to a slot, to slaughter. And, and I don't think he understood fully. Because it was revealed to them that they weren't serving uh, themselves, but the later generations. Again, Revelation 19.10 says, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John, an apostle in his old age. Isn't that amazing? How glorious must an angel be that this great apostle falls at his feet and is ready to worship? What kind of glory would an angel have then? The display of glory would be so radiant, so incredible. By the way, it says that we all in Christ will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. What an incredible thing. The glory of God shining in and through us. Not our own glory, but rather his through us. What an incredible thing. Amazing thing. But anyway, um, angels are already glorious. And John falls at his feet to worship the angel. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you 
and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's such an important verse. That's what prophecy was given for. That's the purpose ultimately of prophecy. Yes, there are prophecies that seem to have nothing directly to do with Jesus. Like when Agabus predicted there would be a famine throughout the Roman world. That was a prophecy, it's true. And it may seem like it had nothing to do with Jesus. But ultimately prophecy was given so that we would know Jesus. That's why it was given. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing. So Christ was the one about whom the prophets wrote. Christ was also the source of revelation from God. The word of the Lord came to the prophets, but Christ is the word of the Lord. You see the difference? There's a big difference there, isn't there? It's like a big difference between saying God is loving and saying God is love. There's a big difference between someone saying I speak the truth or I am truthful and I am the truth. There's there's just a big difference between that. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus made these kinds of claims. All right. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. There's a big difference between speaking the word of God and being the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the father's side has made him known. And then John 14, seven through nine, if you really knew me, uh, you would know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So just when you looked at Jesus, he revealed the Father. Uh, he's more than just a prophet. Therefore, Christ can speak with an authority that no one else has. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You've heard that, but now I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be in danger of judgment. And again, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. He's saying these things. You have heard that it was said, but I now, I say to you. That's, that's remarkable. Who is he to say these things? Again, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I love this one in John 7, when the scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, send uh, the temple guard to go arrest Jesus. And they go in and listen for a while. That was their first mistake. They just listened to Jesus speaking and uh, they didn't fulfill their mission. <laughs> they just were entranced by what he was saying. They'd never, they never heard anything like it before. And they go back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, they said. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't arrest him after they listened to Jesus speak. They must be Jesus' sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow. I bet those, those guards that couldn't arrest Jesus, I bet they're in heaven right now. Because they could listen, they could hear God speaking. And that's the essence of being one of Christ's sheep. You're going to follow him because you can just hear God speaking through him. Christ spoke with a, in a way and an authority that no one else had. Christ, therefore, is the final word to the human race. Now, do not misunderstand this again. Christ is not the final word chronologically. There were prophecies after Christ. The New Testament was written after Christ, but still Christ is the final word. Do you know what I'm saying? He's God's final word to the human race because the words of the prophets that came after were speaking Christ to the human race. 
Christ is the final word. And you get that out of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. See, this is the thing. Jesus is the last day's word from God. He is the final word from God. Um, that's the ultimate uh, function of Jesus as, as prophet. Christ is also priest. I tell you, this is a good place to stop. Let's do this. We're not going to hurry through Christ as priest. Why would we do that? Do you have any questions about what we covered today so far? Yes, Fred. Well, all, all apostles were prophets, but not all prophets are apostles. Uh, all of the apostles were uh, sent uh, to speak the word of God. They, they uh, had the power to speak and to communicate in that way, uh, to preach the, the gospel. The, the word apostle literally means sent one. Apostello is the Greek word for to send. And it says in, uh, in Mark's gospel that he chose the 12 and designated them to be apostles. So they are the 12 who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' physical ministry on earth. It's a unique role. It will never be fulfilled again. I'm against anybody who claims to be an apostle now. Okay? I'm against it. Because I think apostles were unique specifically in that they were eye and physical witnesses of Jesus' incarnation life on earth who could then testify to the resurrection. Look at the, the requirements of apostle in Acts chapter 1. We had to be with, with Jesus from the whole days, the whole time he went in and out among them, beginning from John's baptism to the time of his ascension. Nobody today, even if they have the word apostle on their name in front of the church sign, I've seen it. Have you, have you all seen it? Apostle so-and-so? Man, I'd like to talk to that person way older than Methuselah, way older, okay? Um, I, I don't even want to joke. I mean, let's put it aside. There are no apostles alive today, okay? Uh, other, any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that, especially since there are the 12 apostles in the book of Revelation and, and one of the, each of the, and I, my ultimate answer is I don't know. I do know that Paul calls himself one untimely born. Some people speculate that it was wrong for the church to have gone ahead and identified uh, Matthias as Judas's replacement because God had somebody else in mind and so they cast lots. That's a little hairy for me. I just don't know. Um, I just think, you know, it's the same thing with the 12 tribes. I mean, Joseph's tribe breaks into, tr into two, Manasseh and Ephraim, where Levi, Dan isn't even mentioned in the list of tribes at one point. The whole thing's a little tricky with the whole 12 tribes thing. So the same thing with the 12 apostles. Clearly, Paul was an apostle and he saw uh, the resurrected Christ, although I don't know that he saw Jesus going in and out the whole time uh, from John's baptism. Any other questions? Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for what we've learned tonight about the, the, these, these roles in the scripture prophet, priest, and king. Lord, we thank you for how Jesus is that for us. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord. I thank you for the way that you have fully and completely ministered to us in our sin. And Lord, you've given us everything we need. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand Jesus better, that we would walk in the power of the spirit and the newness of life. Thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. 
We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.